Amen. Well, good morning again. <laughs> Thank you, Pastor Dan. Uh, wanted to say Happy Father's Day to you guys too, um, and ask, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter five? We're going to be in verses forty-three through forty-eight. Hey, I just wanted to give a little bit of clarity with what Dan said a second ago. He said that there was a iced cold beverage for you, Father. You don't, uh, you don't need to show your ID in case you're curious. <laughs> Uh, I was, and I don't think you meant to give that impression, did you, Dan? Or are we just trying to be edgy or what? <laughs> it's a, no, it's a church-approved uh, beverage. Um, it's actually a dad's root beer. How, that's kind of cute, isn't it, Dad? It says dad on it. I thought that was neat. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, we've been in this series called Unworldly for the World, and maybe you're just joining us. Maybe you haven't been here for a long time, but we have been working through. There's actually six statements that Jesus makes where uh, he says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. So we've been in Matthew chapter 5 working through these statements. Um, next week is actually, it's not one of those statements, but it's going to be the end of our series uh, on this unworldly for the world topic. But we're actually, um, what we've been doing is listening to what Jesus is saying actually to his disciples. So if you look at Matthew chapter 5 verse 1, that gives us a good clue of who Jesus is talking to. Matthew 5 verse 1 says this, it's on the screen. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. He is speaking to his disciples. And so we know that Jesus in these passages is speaking to everyone for sure, but specifically he's speaking to those that would call themselves followers of him. And that's important because, and I've said this every single time, and so some of you are really tired of hearing it, but it's okay. It's important for us to know this because what Jesus is calling us to is not, hey, here are a list of things, so this is how you can be a follower of me. He's saying, hey, this is what followers of me look like. So he's speaking to his followers, and so we've been looking at this call on Jesus, or of Jesus, on the lives of his followers to not look like the world, to be radically righteous, but not just for the sake of righteousness, but because Jesus knows that this calling is the call of God, and it honors God, and so we're going to find joy there, but he also knows that if we operate this way, people are going to notice. If you remember with me that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, this is also on the screen, it says this, In the same way, let your light shine before others. This is from the salt and light passage. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so the point is this, when we are unworldly, when we aren't like the world, when we live as radically righteous people, when we live lives that are empowered by the Holy Spirit, then people are going to notice and they're going to glorify God because of it. I read this week that in uh, 1958, in this issue of Christian Century, which was a Christian publication, it actually still is, a writer published a critique of C.S. Lewis that said that Lewis did not care much for the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Lewis responded to this writer by saying this, as for caring for in quotes, the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for means liking or enjoying, I suppose nobody cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. 
And I, I share this with you today because once again, Jesus is going to offend our sensibilities. He's going to knock us on our face with a sledgehammer. I hope you guys are going to enjoy that. Um, and, and you may find yourself thinking as we read through this stuff, well, I don't really care for that. And almost every single line that Jesus preaches through this Sermon on the Mount, if we take it seriously, it kind of levels us. And, and, and it seems impossible. And I actually, that is the point. Jesus wants you to know that you cannot do this without his help. Here's the thing, though. If you have felt stretched during this series, if you have felt stretched as Jesus is preaching these words, as I have, I think that we should see that as a good thing. Not because we're masochists and we like pain, but because while we can be discouraged by the pain, we have to know that Jesus' words are doing something in us. They're drawing us to him. And when we desire to honor God and know we need Jesus to do it, then we are right where we need to be. When we feel God calling us to this radical righteousness, then we are right where we need to be. And the fact that Jesus would call us to this means something. That means that he knows that it is possible for you and me to grow in our faith. And because of that, he knows that the characteristics of one of his disciples are going to become more and more evident in our lives. And Jesus believes that we can consistently reflect his call as long as we rely on him. And that is why he continues to stretch us, because he knows who we can be when we submit to his authority. And so while it's painful, it's good. And so let's look at Jesus' calling to us, starting this morning with verse 43. And Jesus does what he's done through this whole series so far. Um, he tells us the traditional view of what love was during his time. So we'll call it limited love. That's the traditional view. Verse 43 says this. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So just a reminder that Jesus is saying, you have heard that it was said. He's not ever saying you have seen that it was written. So Jesus is saying in your day, in this culture, you have heard that it was said. The rabbis are teaching this. It, it is not Jesus saying the Bible says this, but I say this. He's saying, you have heard the rabbis say this, but this is actually what God says in his word. And so they've interpreted the biblical law so that it works for them. That's what the rabbis have done. And these statements by the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're, they're not direct quote from, quotes from the Bible, but people listen to them. And because they are the religious leaders of the day, then Jesus knows that they're uh, they're not actually following the law of Moses from the Old Testament. But they're confusing the people. And so look with me at Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. What does the Old Testament actually say about love, of loving your neighbor? It says this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. But the rabbis of the day are teaching this, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Do you see the difference? They cut out the words as yourself and they've added the phrase hate your enemy. And just so you know, the command to hate your enemy is not found anywhere in the Old Testament. Nowhere. So they've added this on their own. It was added by the teachers of the day. And why would they add something like that to the words of the Bible? Well, because they believed that God wanted all of their enemies dead. That was their firm belief, actually. 
Well, how are they convinced of this? What they've done is they believe that since they have read the impregatory Psalms from David about God, and, and since God at certain points in history have commanded the Israelites to wipe out their enemies, maybe you remember he commanded them to exterminate the Canaanites, then they deduce that that must mean that God supported or even called for them to hate others. What they're missing, though, is this, and we'll just use the Canaanites as an example. God spared Canaan for over 400 years to give her time to repent. And then when in his kindness, in the kindness of God, Canaan didn't repent, God sent his people in as judgment to punish the wicked of the pagan nations. What the Pharisees in Jesus' day failed to see is that God's commands to destroy Canaan and any other commands of God to destroy a nation, they are always judicial and not individual. God never tells someone to destroy another person because of their personal conflict. We talked about this last week. He never does that. He's the one who judges. Another reason that they added hate your enemy, that the Pharisees and the scribes would have added hate your enemy, is because of this. It is a natural interpretive step that we all make, right? It went something like this. If God is calling us to love our neighbor, then what is the opposite of that? It's just natural. So they would argue to love your neighbor has the natural corollary of hating your enemy, right? What's the opposite of loving your neighbor? Hating the person that's not your neighbor. What's interesting is that the scribes and the Pharisees, they had to completely set aside God's word to get to their reality. Look with me at Exodus chapter 23, verses 4 and 5. This is what it means to love everybody. This is what uh, Exodus 23 4 and 5 says this, if you meet your enemy's ox, I don't know if your enemies have oxes, but okay, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it, you shall rescue it with him. So even in God's word in the Old Testament, he tells you how to love your enemies. He never says hate your enemies. The Old Testament never teaches hatred of your enemy. One more reason that the scribes and the Pharisees believed that they should hate their enemies is this. It was just common. And I think maybe of all of these things, we could probably relate to this one the best. This is, that, those aren't Jesus's words. Those are mine. Maybe I'm stepping on your toes now. But in our day, it's just kind of common to hate your enemy. The Jewish people were taught that they were honoring God by despising anyone who was not Jewish. So what was standard in Jesus' day? Well, it was standard to limit your love to those who were lovable. I will only love my neighbor, and my neighbor is only my fellow Israelite, and I will hate everybody else. And Jesus is about to say, well, that may sound logical to you, but that is not who God is. So what does Jesus say? What is his radical call for today? Well, the radical call is this. He's saying that is limited love. The radical call is unlimited love. Look at verse 44. It says this, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So given the reality of the day, 
the fact that Israel hated anyone who wasn't Israel, this statement from Jesus would have been supremely radical, right? These people would have been shocked by Jesus' teaching, but in Jesus, what, so what is Jesus trying to say to them? What does love your enemies mean? Well, there's these great theologians, maybe you guys have heard of them, DC Talk. I don't know if you've heard of them. Some of you kids are like, what is that? But anyway, there's pretty amazing theologians. They used to say love is a verb. You guys know that song? Is it just me? Should we play it? No? Okay. But what Jesus is saying is love is a verb. Actively care for your enemies. Love people constantly, consistently, and practically. Give yourself up and give yourself away for the good of the people who oppose, hate, and even persecute you. In essence, Jesus is transforming their enemies or our enemies into our neighbors. Okay, well then how do we do this? Well, Luke chapter 6 actually gives a summary of the Sermon on the Mount, and generally it's shorter in the book of Luke than it is in Matthew, but here actually in these verses, in Luke chapter 6 verses 27 through 28, Uh, It sort of expands on it and says this, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Notice those three things on how to love your enemies. It's practical. Do good to them, bless them, pray for them. When your enemies criticize you, when they revile you, when they slander you, you meet their criticism and their reviling and their slandering with courteous, friendly words. You don't return insult for insult. You speak well of them. This is how you bless those who curse you. Jesus also says, do good to them. How? Be ready to give them practical kindness. Be glad to meet every opportunity to do them kindness. If their donkey is weighted down by the load, help them out. That's what Exodus said. And then finally, Jesus says, pray for your enemies. This is, there there is literally no way to develop love more quickly for an enemy than to start praying for them. Praying for your enemies puts your enemy before the throne of God. It commits their welfare to the one who knows all things and sees all things. And Jesus is saying, if you are opposed and persecuted for following Christ, then how should you respond? Love them anyway. If you were mistreated, maybe even harmed by your enemies, how do you respond? You pray for them. It's probably very, very important here for us all to notice that Jesus never says this. Hear me very clearly on this. Jesus never says, embrace your enemy's lifestyle. The best way to love them is to just love them where they're at. Jesus never says that. Or agree with everything that they say or they do. That is not love for your enemy. That is the opposite of love. Jesus says this, do not revile them. Be kind to them in practical ways and pray for them. That's how you do it. Why does he call his disciples to this unlimited love? Well, he would say this, because what it does is it reveals your true identity. Well, what is our identity? Verse 45, so that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil 
and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Why is Jesus calling his disciples to unlimited love? Well, because it's a reflection of God. It reflects who we are and it reflects whose we are. Listen to this very, very carefully. Loving your enemies does not make you a child of God. You are a child of God because of your faith in Jesus Christ alone. It could be easy for us to read verse 45 and say that in order for me to become a child of God, then I need to love my enemies. But what Jesus is saying is this, love for your enemies is proof of who is your God. We show that we are children of God when we love our enemies. We show that we are God's children when we act how God acts. Jesus is stating here that when we love our enemies, we are like our heavenly Father. And Jesus is saying when you impartially show love to your enemies as well as to your friends, you're like God. God shows the impartiality of his love by sending the sun and the rain on both the good and the evil, on both the just and on the unjust, right? We live in farm country. It's kind of easy for us to think this way, but have you ever noticed that the rain only falls on the righteous man's field and not on the unrighteous man's field? No. Have you ever noticed that the sun is only shining on the parsonage where I live and not downtown in Vermilion? No. And I just made myself the righteous there. Whatever. God causes sun to shine both on the just and on the unjust. And Jesus is saying when we limit our love, we do not look like God. When we love, though, without limits, we're like God. Jesus ratchets up his point now, and he really hits his audience where it hurts in verses 46 and 47. And he says this, when you love in an unlimited way, you reflect the Father. But also when you love in an unlimited way, you become distinct from the world that you live in. You become unworldly for the world. We become distinct from the world. In verse 46, it says this, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Well, maybe you have already felt like Jesus has crossed a line with you this morning. But the people he was preaching to would have been absolutely floored by this statement. Why? Well, because tax collectors were despised and hated in Jesus' day like almost nobody else. They were traitors. No one could have missed Jesus' point here with these examples because what was happening was the Roman Empire, who uh, Israel was under, who the Jews were under, the Roman Empire used a tax system in which the government would designate how much money was to be collected from each household, Right? And each tax collector then would turn in that amount that was designated by Rome, and then they were able to keep whatever else they could gather. And so the Hebrew person saw all tax collectors as licensed robbers. They were loathed by everyone, especially the Jews. And so a Jewish person would have thought, I have nothing in common with these infamous criminals. They are the worst people ever. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, not so fast, you guys. It may only be other tax collectors, but they do have friends also. And Jesus looks at the people he's teaching and he says, how are you any different than these people that you hate if you only love people who love you back? There is no doubt in my mind that Jesus' example would have stunned these people. In fact, it maybe would have even angered them. 
But like Jesus does, he goes on and probably inflames their anger a little bit more with a second illustration in verse 47, in case they didn't get it. He says this, And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Okay, whoa, Jesus. The Gentiles? The Jewish hatred for the Gentiles was rivaled maybe only by their hatred for tax collectors. And so, really honestly, a double whammy would have been to be a Gentile tax collector. But in Jesus' mind, the Jews, uh, or or sorry, in, in the mind of the Jews, the Gentiles were outside of the ability to receive God's mercy at all. Jewish people would only greet brothers, as Jesus calls them, and they also, they would only say hello to those who were the same as them, other Jews. And Jesus is saying to those listening to him, there is nothing remarkable about your actions if you only love the people who love you. Even the Gentiles do that. Someone doesn't deserve a medal for doing what comes naturally to them. Everyone in the world, even the most hardened sinner, loves someone who loves them back. And really what the scribes and the Pharisees are teaching when they say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, is they're teaching what everyone already does. And here Jesus is calling his people to something higher and nobler than merely what comes naturally to us. Jesus calls us to do something that the people of this world do not do and even can't do, and he calls us to do something that only he can do and that only he can enable us to do. He calls us to love those who are our enemies, and when we do this, we show that we are clearly not of this world. We show that we are indwelt by Jesus himself, and when we return evil, when someone does good to us, you could call that satanic. When we return good, when someone does good to us, that's human. When we return good, when someone has done evil towards us, We call that divine. And there's no better illustration than Jesus himself as he hung on a cross and he was persecuted and mocked by sinners. He he came to save. Jesus loved and prayed for his enemies. And he said this in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. He said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. That's a divine response that Jesus is calling his people to this morning. And then Jesus closes with these words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This verse can a lot of times be taken out of context. So what is Jesus saying here? Is it possible to be perfect? I think that it's always best to see what Jesus is saying in the context of what he's saying it in. He, he isn't saying that you and I can expect to be perfect as God, when we are still here on this earth. What he is calling us to here is this, with respect to this command to love, with this respect to this command to reflect the Father, is he is calling us to be as complete in our call to love others as God is. In the next chapter of Matthew, in chapter 6, Jesus is going to teach us how to pray. And in that prayer, Jesus is going to say, pray like this, forgive us our sins, forgive us our debts, forgive us our trespasses. 
So when Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, it is clear in this context, especially with what's coming, that he's not expecting us to achieve perfection in this lifetime. Because if he was, he would have never taught us to pray and ask God to forgive us. What Jesus is saying here is be perfect by having the same kind of all-embracing love that your heavenly Father has for people. Do not be limited with your love. The Bible commentator Matthew Henry once said this, Christianity is more than humanity. We know more than others. We talk more the things of God than others. We profess more than others. We have been promised more than others. God has done more for us, and therefore, he justly expects more from us than others. He calls us to love the unlovable, because that's what God does. This was Jesus' teaching on loving our enemies, and what it does is it leaves us where it always leaves us, and it's with some questions. What do we take home with us this week? I've actually been asking this question as I've been studying this passage this entire week, and I've just keep being drawn to this question, and the question is this, what does this passage teach us about God? I know that I've said this before, but we can get so keyed in on what the Bible is saying about me that we forget that the first step is to see what is the Bible saying about God because that's what changes me. What does this teach me about the heart of God? What is God calling me to and how does he show me that? And when we know that, then we can be drawn to honor him in our lives. So what does this passage teach me about God? As I thought about this question this week, I was drawn to the story of maybe one of the most familiar characters in all of the Old Testament, Jonah. And I know that many of us know him best through the story of how he was swallowed by a big fish. But I think that the story of Jonah was given for us, at least for this morning, to illustrate exactly what Jesus is teaching us about divine love. How? Well, the story of Jonah shows us that God's love extends even to those who are his enemies. And just so we're all on the same page, because maybe not all of us know this, but Jonah was a prophet of God, and his story began with God telling him, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I need you to cry out against it. And God said in verse 2 of Jonah chapter 1, the reason I need you to do this is their wickedness has come up before me. And Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. Why? God's calling him to go to Nineveh. You'd think if you heard God audibly tell you, go do this, then you would do this. But Jonah says, no. Why? Because Nineveh was the chief city of the wicked people known as the Assyrians. And they were the worst of the worst. They were the most brutal people in ancient times. And Jonah lived in a time when people feared the Assyrians and people hated them. And the Assyrians were particularly cruel and troublesome to Jonah's people, the Jews. And so when God called Jonah to go and deliver a message to them, he was like, no way. They are the worst They hate me, God. They hate you, and I don't want to do it. And we know the story, most of us. Jonah tried to flee, and he was in the belly of a big fish for three days, and then he was spit up by this fish, or vomited, or whatever, helps you think of it. 
And then when Jonah gets another chance to go and preach the message that God calls him to preach, so he does it because who is going to sit in the belly of a fish for three days and then say no to God again, right? So here's the message from Jonah, chapter 3, verse 4. He goes in and it says, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So he's just yelling out, You guys have 40 days to get right with God or God is going to overthrow you. He's going to destroy you. And it had been a really bad week for Jonah, right? Think about it. He's been in the belly of a fish. He was given a very undesirable command before that by God. Hey, go to Nineveh. He tried to disobey God. He did disobey God, but he got caught up. And then he was spit up onto a beach and he ended up making his way into Nineveh anyway. And the way that I think about this is I think that in Jonah's mind, at least he thought this. He thought that maybe I at least get to tell my enemies, who I hate very much, that they are going to be overthrown in 40 days. At minimum, this is a good assignment because I get to tell them that they're stinkers and God's going to destroy them. And just again, as a quick aside, I want us to notice something that Jonah, when he went and told them that they needed to repent, he did not, God did not say go into Nineveh and do everything they do and become like them. And the best way to love them is to embrace their lifestyle. God never said that. He said, go in and tell them that they're wicked and they need to repent. Love is caring for them. Love is sharing the truth. That's a quick aside. But what happened after Jonah shared this message? Well, the Bible says this in chapter 3, verse 5 of Jonah. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Well, that sounds like a really good thing, right? They all turned and repented. Jonah responds in chapter 4 and verses 1 through 3 with this. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you, he's starting to tell God about himself, I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. What a baby. All right. Jonah describes God in this passage. Who is God? He is gracious towards his enemies. He is pleased to give them the things that they don't deserve. He is merciful towards them. He is pleased to refrain from giving them what they do deserve. And he is eager to forgive them of their sins instead if they will repent. He is slow to anger towards them. He is long-suffering towards them and patient with them, willing to give them time and the opportunity to repent of their sins and to cry out to Him. He is abounding in steadfast love, rich in compassion, love, and grace towards those who plead with Him for His mercy. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says this about God, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that we should all reach repentance. 
even his enemies. I want us to stop for just a second and think about someone that you might consider your enemy. Are you of the same spirit towards them that God would be towards his own enemies? Jonah was not like God towards his enemies. He was very deeply angered over the way that things turned out. And so God, he needed to help Jonah become more like him in his attitude. And so what happened after that scene where he was mad at God for being rich in mercy and slow to anger and abounding in love? Jonah sat on a hillside outside of Nineveh and God caused a plant to grow up over him to provide him with shade. I don't think you guys have to really get your mind wrapped around this, but think about scorching heat. Anybody ever experienced it? Oh. Yeah, you have, Riley. Yeah. It's hot, right? And God caused a plant to grow up over him. And this may sound weird, but Jonah loved that plant. In the state of mind that he was in, I am sure that Jonah looked at that plant like it was his only friend. He had been in the belly of a whale. He went and preached in Nineveh. God delivered those people. He's mad. He's probably bleach white from being in the stomach of a fish, right? And he's underneath a tree or a plant that's providing him shade, and he feels like it's the only friend he has left in the world. But in the middle of the night when Jonah is sleeping, God causes a worm to kill that plant. And when Jonah wakes up, his pet plant is dead. And it's gone. And this was just too much for Jonah. He broke down and he wept and he mourned over his plant, wishing that he himself could just die. And this is when God's greatest message to Jonah finally came. And I need us to hear this. God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Is it right for you to mourn over this destroyed thing? And Jonah said, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Why did Jonah say this? Because he had pity on something that was precious to him. He had pity on something that was precious to him, and God didn't argue with Jonah. God didn't tell Jonah, well, that is insane, and you need to grow up. God takes Jonah's genuine emotions, emotions of sorrow and mourning that he justifiably felt because he loved that plant, and he uses those emotions to teach Jonah how God himself feels over the prospect of the destruction of even those who are considered his enemies. Look at what God says to Jonah in Jonah chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left? And in case Jonah didn't care about the people, God said, and also much cattle. God says, Jonah, think about all of the people. I want them to come and enjoy the grace that I have in store for all of those who embrace me by faith. Jonah, I want my enemies to find freedom in me, the same freedom that you know. Jonah, I want them to know what you know about me, that I am 
gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And God says to you and me this morning, as hard as it is to hear because we want to hate our enemies, but he says to us, this is my heart, you guys. Love your enemies, pray for them. I want them to know me. Be unworldly for the world that you live in. It is easy to love those whom you delight in. It is difficult to love those who are not only different from us, but also for those of us who feel like we are abused by people or we feel like people seek to take advantage of us. But God says, my heart is that those people might know me too. I want to say that shamefully, and maybe you feel the same way, I can relate to Jonah. There are people and there are people groups in our own town that I want God to destroy with his judgment. Maybe maybe I'm a pastor and I shouldn't have said that, but it's a shame. I think that God's judgment needs to happen right now. And I believe that God will judge sin. I hope you hear me clearly on that. I believe that God does not love sin at all. But I am not always cool with God being slow to anger and rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love. But this is who God is. And this is who he has called his people to be for his kingdom and for the sake of the people in our world. Maybe you're still asking the question this morning, well, how do I do that? What do I do today? Do I just need to go out, find someone and say, you're my enemy, God told me to love you, so that maybe was too far. No, I actually think Jesus told us, pray and practice. Jesus said it, we can start today by praying for people that we do not like. It's the most basic first step forward. It is probably the easiest, most practical first step forward. And it may have to be an act of our wills. This might be something you need to write down in your planner, put it on your list, and we do it because this is the heart of our God. We know God's heart, and so let's just practice praying for the people that we do not have a heart for. I want to end this morning with this small section from a C.S. Lewis book called Mere Christianity. Maybe you've read it. If you haven't, you should. Um, And the worship team can come on up. C.S. Lewis says this. The rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. But if you do a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. The difference between a Christian and a worldly man is not that the worldly man has only affections or likings, and the Christian has only charity. The worldly man treats certain people kindly because he likes them. The Christian trying to treat everyone kindly finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on, including the people that he could not even have imagined himself liking at the beginning. In some ways, the big call this morning of Jesus is whether you feel like it or not, step out and love your enemy 
And it starts with prayer. Let's pray for our enemies because we know this is the heart of God, that he wants people to know him. And praise God that he's rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you again for your word. Lord, thank you for the high calling that for some of us this morning just feels impossible. And Lord, I again think that's a good thing because it forces us to rely on you. Lord, today I pray as many of us are thinking and processing that you would bring to mind the people that you love and that you want to know you that maybe we can't stand. And Father, I pray that all of us would find ourselves, even as an act of our wills, as we praying for our enemies. Lord, would you change our hearts towards our enemies, not to embrace their lifestyle, not to embrace the things that we're frustrated with, but God, would you give us a heart for their souls? Would you give us a heart that they would know you? Because God, you love them. We love you, Father. We thank you so much again for your word and this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.